Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Thursday night, we take a dip into a big problem floating in the Atlantic these days, an over 8,000 kilometer wide brown glob of seaweed known as the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt. Not only will it clog up beaches in places like Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean this summer and spread a rotting smell, scientists have found a new threat buried in there. We find out what that is. The impact of hundreds of wildfires burning across the country right now and the incredible amount of smoke they've been producing is top of mind for many on both sides of the border these days. We look into why there are so many large fires burning so hot this year, what's fueling them, why they're so difficult to fight, and discuss why the smoky skies are yet another reminder of why we should be talking more about indoor air quality. But first, Canada has seen a huge spike in stolen vehicles as organized crime treats our cities like a car hunting ground. Why the rise and what can you do to protect yourself? Well, this is a very real problem, something we often see on the big screen as well. The number of vehicle thefts across this country continues to jump, particularly in Ontario and Quebec, that according to Equité Association, an insurance industry group, they say that, uh, I mean, they focus on preventing insurance fraud. In a new report they've released, they say that the industry lost more than a billion dollars, the insurance industry, that is, a billion dollars for the first time on vehicle theft claims last year. That's up from $700 million in 2021. Uh, thefts rose 50% in Quebec, nearly 50% in Ontario, nearly 35% throughout Atlantic Canada. Organized crime, of course, is helping push those numbers. These are not simple joyriders, quite obviously. This is a organized affair. Um, and uh, the Equity Association says that uh, they expect the losses to continue to climb. None of this will be a surprise to Peel Regional Police Chief Nishan Dura-Apia. Canada is now becoming known as a source country for exported stolen autos, of which Ontario has the highest uh, volume, from which the GTHA has the highest volume, and here in Peel Region, uh, from what we understand, has the highest per capita stolen auto rate. There you go. So uh, sort of the Russian doll thing of this Peel Regional, of course, that's where Mississauga and Brampton is and so on. The report states that organized crime rings across this country are focused on stealing new and luxury vehicles to maximize profits overseas. Brian Gast is the vice president of investigative services with Equité Association, and he joins me now. Brian, thanks. Thank you for having me. So this is not uh, perhaps a a big surprise, but wow, those numbers are high. What's happened in the last 12 months? Yeah, they are high, and even for the last uh, three, four years, really, it's organized crime that's uh, taking advantage of the global demand and shortage on used vehicles, and they're cashing in on that. Uh, They are targeting Canada, Uh, and again, it's coast-to-coast. It's uh, trends that we're starting to see that we hadn't seen before, but uh, largely, a lot of the vehicles, the high-value vehicles, are being stolen and exported. Right. What does it look like? I mean, you, you referred at one point, I think, to the GTA as a hunting ground. So l- literally groups of people out there targeting vehicles that they know they can take quickly that are somehow relatively easy to grab, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really any vehicle with a push-button start is, has the vulnerability. That's what they're targeting, when, especially for the vehicles that are being exported. Higher-value vehicles, uh, Ontario and Quebec, uh, have the proximity to the ports. And a lot of those vehicles, and there's there's a large population, a large volume of those vehicles present 
One of the trends that we're starting to see is some of the vehicles from the West, including Vancouver, that are being stolen and uh, exported out of the eastern ports, which is uh, relatively new over the last uh, year or so. Right, because that's a long way, and there's a port out here. I don't know why they'd have to bring them all the way back east, but I suppose that depends where the cars are off to. Exactly. I mean, there is definitely demand in certain countries uh, over the Sea of of the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, they are stretching their reach. And uh, again, it's just no longer just two provinces. They are expanding into Alberta and British Columbia. And uh, again, not all vehicles that are being stolen or are being exported. A lot of them are being chopped up for parts. A lot of them are being used to commit other crimes. Uh, some of them are being uh, used uh, to read in. And that's also a concerning thing. People buy. I think they're spending good money on a used vehicle, and in fact, it's a uh, a stolen reven vehicle. So a reven vehicle is the vehicle identification number has been switched out uh, with something that gives it appearance that it's no longer a stolen vehicle. Right. I guess it, just a question is: you mentioned supply and demand. Right during the pandemic, the supply, especially of used vehicles, was down. New vehicles, people were waiting a long time to get. So there's demand out there for this, and uh, obviously, where there's demand, there's going to be going to be those who uh, will, are willing to provide supply in a uh, illegal way. That's absolutely correct. I mean, they, these crime groups, uh, domestic and international, are targeting these vehicles, and it's extremely lucrative for them. They're able to uh, profit from them. Again, uh, I think it's a misconception or a, a, a wrongful to, uh, to assume that this is just a, a property crime or a victimless crime. When the fact that this is funding organized crime groups, uh, funding terrorism, this is a very serious uh, international event. And that's why we really work with law enforcement domestically and internationally. Interpol has done a great job coordinating some of these efforts, trying to make it harder one, for the for the criminals to uh, access Canadian vehicles and export them out, and uh, hopefully starting to make uh, have the trend go the other way. Right. I, I mean, I, I, several years ago now, my dad, he lives in Montreal, his SUV was stolen. They found it in a container at the port of Montreal. Uh, is that basically how it normally works? I mean, if you could walk me through what an average theft looks like, how quickly it happens, and how quickly that vehicle is sort of loaded up and on its way elsewhere. Yeah, good question. And I mean, the technology has advanced so rapidly. I mean, since 2007, uh, Transport Canada has mandated all vehicles in Canada to be sold with an uh, anti theft device. Criminals have also evolved, so they've got it down to about 15 seconds to steal a vehicle. So you have wow. your individuals that are stealing the vehicle, and then you have the networks that are getting the vehicles to their exit point of, of Canada. So, that, say, for your example, the Port of Montreal, uh, it gets uh, loaded into a container, put on a ship. Uh, and then uh, obviously it's off to its destination, and then there's the receiving end of it where they receive it and uh, they sell it uh, overseas or use it overseas for that matter. It's a lucrative business too, and and, and for those who are caught, not necessarily uh, an extremely punitive one either, right? This, I mean, it's not a victimless crime, but for those perpetrating it, it's also not a particularly uh, difficult crime either to commit or if you're caught, to be caught doing, right, as far as the criminal justice system is concerned. Yeah, and you're right. Right now, it's a low, a high reward, low risk. And one of the things that you mentioned about Ontario being basically the epicenter for these crimes, they've just initiated a provincial auto theft team. But one of the interesting things with that is they've attached a special prosecution team to that. So really targeting and making the prosecutions and the sentencing 
reflective of the seriousness of the crime. And hopefully that makes a, a statement to these criminals that are, are targeting Canadian vehicles. Yeah. Do you feel like um, they've targeted us, more, targeted Canada more than other places, perhaps because they saw an opportunity here, something that we had to, a loophole that we had to close up? I wonder what that would be, or is it just happening everywhere? It is happening everywhere. I mean, we we have great conversations with our international partners, and uh, it, it is happening everywhere. Um, but it is definitely uh, the focus right is right now on Canada. They have their networks established. They have the vehicles. They have the target vehicles. They found a way to get them out of the out of the country, and uh, they found buyers uh, for these vehicles. So, again, a lot of things are good. Things are happening. But uh, we're still a long way from uh, where we need to be. But uh, it's encouraging to see the progress that we've made just even in the last uh, five, six months. Right. What kind of what kind of vehicles do they target generally? Because I know for a while in Montreal, it was generally it was generally high end SUVs. Those are the ones that really had a big market abroad. But I gather that's uh, they're diversifying as well, uh, so to speak. Yeah, they are. I mean, really, they, they do like the pickup trucks, the SUVs. Uh, anything with a push-button start uh, really has a vulnerability. There's really two main ways. There's there's all the revolving trends. The onboard diagnostic port, that's that port that's under your steering wheel. Its intended use is for uh, if you have a problem with your vehicle, you take it into the to the repair shop, the mechanic plugs in the computer, does a diagnostic on it on your vehicle. Criminals also have tools and devices. They can plug into that same port and reprogram a key fob. Uh, that's probably the most prevalent uh, method of theft. And then you have your relay attacks. You've probably seen this where somebody's standing near your front door with what looks to be an antenna, somebody by your vehicle, and they're uh, intercepting that radio frequency, which is called a relay attack. And that's where uh, the Faraday pouches and things like that, where you're protecting your radio frequency uh, from uh, transmitting to your vehicle is, is useful. Brian, what are some of the things? I mean, I gather it's about 57% retrieval. That's the number I saw, which seems actually pretty decent compared to other stuff that gets stolen. But uh, there must be ways that, that individuals can, can better protect their vehicles, being aware that this has become a, a bigger problem than before. Yeah, absolutely. And we call it a layered approach. So if you have a vehicle um, that has a push-button start, and even if it doesn't, even if it's an older model, pre-2007, those vehicles can still be stolen as well. But uh, it's really the technology that uh, that's out there that can steal vehicles. So, again, we call it a layered approach. Some of them are the basic ones. If you have a garage, park it in the garage. If you don't, park it in a well-lit area. Never uh, leave your vehicles or your key fob in the vehicle. Leave your doors uh, locked. So those are some really common sense ones, but uh, highly effective. And then you can, uh, I talked about the onboard diagnostic port. There's a, uh, a port lock that you can that you can purchase, and really it's just a face cover that locks that port so the criminals can't plug in and reprogram your key fob. Um, a steering wheel column, uh, a steering wheel lock, um, some of those types of things are extremely effective. Um, and then if you move into the immobilizers, uh, an aftermarket immobilizers is essentially a sophisticated kill switch. Regardless if they break in, they still don't know the sequence in which they can start their vehicle, and then a tracking device. Uh, if your vehicle is stolen, uh, there's a tracking There's tracking services out there that are highly effective. And I always, whenever I mention that, I always caution, don't take matters in your own hands. If your vehicle's stolen, don't follow it. Always call police with your suspicion or the whereabouts of your vehicle and let them act. And then finally, the Faraday pouch. That's simply a pouch, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a purchase one, a metal box, something that you could put your key fob in while at home, 
and uh, it doesn't emit that radial frequency back to the vehicle, that which is susceptible of being uh, intercepted uh, by the criminals with the uh, proper devices and they're able to start and steal your car. I was reading that there are some I'm, I'm, that there are some subsidies out there. Insurance companies will help out with some of this stuff sometime, depending on what exactly it is. But uh, is that what? What can you tell me about that? Yeah, and we're working on that uh, to make it uh, make it broader use. Uh, have the consumers uh, um, be eligible for rebates and uh, and incentives to be able to attach these that. Uh, help with the overall protection of the vehicle. So that's something that we're working on uh, across the country. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll start to see that, see this wider adoption of these types of measures. Some are, are don't cost very much, and uh, some do have a little bit more of an expense to them. But again, highly effective. I would say if an individual had a Faraday pouch, had an a, a aftermarket immobilizer, had an OBD port lock, and a tracking device uh, on their vehicle, the likelihood of their vehicle being stolen would be greatly diminished. Right. And as you mentioned earlier, this is not a victimless crime. And even if you've not had your own vehicle stolen, every stolen vehicle uh, is is a little drip on your own insurance costs eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, this is far from a, a victimless crime. And I mean, one of the biggest concerning things, not only for law enforcement, but for our international partners, is what uh, these vehicles are being used for domestically and internationally. Domestically, when vehicles are sold to unsuspecting consumers, they think they're spending several hundred, or not several, tens of thousands of dollars on a used vehicle uh, to find out that it's uh, stolen and been revenged. Again, every province is facing that, and uh, it's something that we're working towards. And then the flip side, when uh, vehicles are exported, when they're used for other crimes, again, uh, very, very serious uh, offenses that are occurring with these stolen vehicles. Right. I noticed you had a YouTube video out actually recently. If, if people want to know some tips on how to better protect your vehicle, there's a YouTube video out that Equity Association has put out. I believe your website has all the same information, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it does. And every year we do our top 10 uh, list of stolen vehicles. It shows the national, uh, what the top 10 stolen vehicles are, just to give people an idea of uh, if, you're, if your vehicle is on that list, Take extra precaution. If your vehicle is not on that list, you should still take the same precautions because all vehicles can be stolen. Right. Was it the Honda CRV again? Was that the one? It seems to have been number one for a long time, the Honda CRV, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it's it still uh, tops the national list, uh, largely because there's just so many of them, and uh, right. they're well built, and there's a there's a demand for them, uh, not only for parts but for revinning plus uh, export. Brian, uh, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having me. It's always interesting when a new car takes top spot on the sales list. And this time, it's an EV. Well, what other EV could it be, right, other than the Tesla? It's a Tesla Model Y. The ESUV has become the world's best-selling car, at least for the first quarter of 2023, topping the usual uh, rainy, the usual champs, the Toyota Corolla, the Toyota RAV4, and so on. That's all from uh, a company called Motor One. It's Jetto uh, Dynamics published it essentially. Um, so these are, I mean, these are numbers from around the world. They're not an exact science, obviously, but it's pretty complete. And uh, Model Y just edged out 
the Corolla, 267,000 to 256,000. But that's a huge jump from last year. It's up 69% over quarter one of, uh, over Q1 of 2022. And of course, Elon Musk had already predicted that. But what does this all mean? Is it sustainable? Jay Kenna is with us. He's an automotive writer. You can also find his travel writing as well. Jay, thanks so much. Welcome back. It's always good to be here, Ben. There you go. So Elon Musk predicted this a year ago. He's like the Tesla Y is going to be the or the Tesla is going to be the number one selling vehicle in the world. And people just wrote it off and said, ah, there's no way. And here we are a year later. He's right. What has he done? He's cut prices and made it more accessible. And I think a point that a lot of people skip over is the Tesla supercharger network is just absurdly good. And there's so much of it. And there's basically the Tesla supercharger network and everybody else. Um, and it's so good that Ford has recently signed on to be able to use Tesla superchargers with the Ford vehicles. So Elon's like, all right, well, let's go for a straight volume. We'll cut prices. We'll put them in more places. And let's just, you know, go get it and be the best. I'm sorry, I take that back. The most popular EV maker in the world. Right. I saw that GM today has also signed up for the uh, for the Tesla supercharger. So I guess Tesla makes money if everyone starts using their chargers, right? They kind of corner the market that way. Uh, so, I, you know, there's a car company owning the gas station, essentially, which is pretty, right? pretty, pretty, pretty uh, impressive. It's, it, it's kind of cutthroat. And, and I don't think that Tesla went to Ford. <laughs> I think it's a matter of Ford and GM saying, hey, you kind of have a stranglehold in the market. And everyone loves how you do your EVs and charging them, and that's a big concern anywhere in Canada because the infrastructure isn't bad, it's just not mature yet. And just like you know, when CDs and cassettes first came out, they were far and few between, and, and the tapes always got eaten up by the mechanism, and the CDs always skipped. And the further you go, the more money that's invested, the better it becomes. When we look at this, so what's driving this? Because I guess um, I would notice that, of course, China seems to be kind of the, the, the cornerstone for the market. But but the Europeans have been buying up a lot of Teslas as well, apparently. Yeah, it's just the big mandate by 2030 for either 100% EV offerings or, you know, a staggering number like 50 to 75 with 2035 and 2040 being, you know, the later, quote unquote, drop dead dates for all manufacturers to have EVs. And, Yes, I know it's only 16 years away in the long end and six years away on the short end, but that's not a lot of time when it takes five to six years and billions of dollars to create a brand new car. Looking at the price of them, too, I mean, certainly for the average Canadian consumer, 60 grand is no drop in the bucket for, uh, for one of these Model Ys. It, it's not. The average price for a car has gone up to around, I think, the high 30s, maybe low 40s. Um, but finding that extra 20000 bucks isn't easy, and a lot of people are doing the, well, if I pay a lot of money now, I'm going to skip gas station visits once a week for the next five, six, seven years. So they'll just front load their costs now and slowly but surely watch the savings add up. Is that, I mean, I remember back when, you know, this doesn't go back that many years, but that, and I see a lot of Teslas out where I am because, of course, the weather's nice, nicer. But mm-hmm. are they good car? Are they good cars? They're not bad cars. Overall, they're good cars. The biggest thing that plagues them is the build quality because the quality assurance isn't great. So you get panel gaps that don't match. You get loose bits and pieces here and there. Still good cars, still safe cars. They pass all of the regulations for it. But compared to almost every other automaker, the build quality isn't as good as them. And if they're bad cars... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. 
<laughs> Look at us being Canadian and polite. Indeed, indeed. If they were bad cars, of course they wouldn't sell, right? Is that the? Is that and it the, wouldn't. Uh, be, it, it wouldn't be the world's best-selling car. So indeed. Um, is, is this a corner turn then? I mean, you know, here we are with the first all-electric vehicle as the most as the best-selling vehicle in the world. Uh, is this a, a is this a significant moment you think for for EVs in general? I mean, they feel there's a certain inevitability. You get the feeling now, like you know, people. My dad still rails against them, of course, right? But you feel there's a certain inev- inevitability. The boomers, right? There's a certain inevitability about about EVs right now, and that this is sort of one of those little symbols of it. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. And it's coming. And more so, it's here. It's in its infancy, but the electric quote-unquote revolution is here. Almost every manufacturer has a hybrid, a plug-in hybrid, or a full EV. Um, there's a, a new Best Value in Canada Awards article that Driving.ca put up. Tesla's right. right there at the top. And there's a lot more EVs, PHEVs, and regular hybrids that are on that list. So electrification is coming whether you want to jump on that train or get off like it's it's coming and it's not stopping where to next then for tesla because clearly they cut prices to try to drive up sales it's worked um you know people were i I guess a a little not that long ago thought this this might not be viable for very much longer but it certainly seems like uh tesla's uh, one one economic guy i follow on twitter was saying today that you know i hate this line but that you know elon musk is playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers and i thought well that's that's a bit seems a bit exaggerated and he wasn't talking about twitter he was talking about about (laughs) about tesla um there's nowhere to go but up for him and partially his ego and partially profits and you know tesla enabled him to buy twitter and wreck it but he still bought it um and you you keep going and you know cash enables the next thing and the next thing and um, i don't think he'll ever say you know what i sold you know a million cars a month for the last five years i'm gonna slow down right i think he would love to see you know 50 60 70 percent market share for all the evs and you know, in Tesla's defense, they're good cars overall. And yeah. I don't mind the build quality being off. If it charges, if it drives well, if it's safe, that's really all I care about. So I think he's just going to keep going, and there'll be new models coming out. I have no idea what that Cybertruck will look like at the end of the day, or if it'll even come out. It's been delayed so long. Um, but, oh, you know, the, I forgot about the Cybertruck. Yeah. Everybody yeah. has, because it's been like four or five years that it's been teased. Um, and maybe that's just a marketing ploy to like, you know, let's put this absurdly ugly, disgusting piece of machinery out there. Let's get people talking and people put down tiny deposits in the hope that one day it'll actually come to life. Right. Cause the Y is technically their, technically their SUV, right? Yeah. And everybody wants SUVs and sedans are not quite dying. I think manual transmissions will die first and sedans will die next and SUVs will reign supreme, at least till we're no longer around. Um, <laughs> so it's not really a surprise that the Model Y, out of all the Tesla offerings, is the one that ranks highest as far as sales go. And for all those who are predicting that uh, that his ta- that Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and some of the politics that goes on there might dissuade people from buying his cars, seem to have been mistaken at least in the short in the short run. Well, if there are rebates to be had, and it's a good car and it's you know relatively affordable. Uh, compared to what other Teslas are out there, um, 
you know, you don't have to love the owner. You have to love the product, right? It's not like Elon sitting shotgun with you every time you drive the car. <laughs> it just happens to be his technology and his design that, you know, part of your money is going to, but you want an EV and you want a huge network of charging stations in the public realm, you can't beat Tesla. You can't. Ford and GM are massive companies on their own. So instead of them trying to reinvent the wheel with their own massive network, they're like, well, Tesla has something good. Let's just jump on that. Yeah. I, I mean, that was a GM announced today. I mean, it's that, that to me is a really big deal because it almost ensures that the Tesla will continue to survive amid all this competition. And even, even if the car starts to fade a bit, the chargers will still be theirs, right? At least for now. It, it, it just seemed to me like, wow, that's, uh, that's quite the stamp for Tesla. Well, it is, especially, you know, GM with the EV1 back in the 90s, and they kill that. And they're now coming out stronger with a t- bunch of new products coming out down the line in the next couple of years. So for them to be forward thinking and, you know, jump into bed with Elon, and same thing with Ford, right? Like, it's not the trio that you'd expect to walk into a bar together. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I wouldn't <laughs> think so. Yeah, Jay Ken is in the driver's seat with us this this evening for this half hour. Automotive writer, we're talking about we're talking about the best selling car on the planet in quarter one of twenty twenty three, the Tesla Y, uh, and now some some another list that's out that's always interesting. Uh, the best value awards from Vincentric have been published for 2023 and lots of EVs in there as well, but some also some familiar names from, from our earlier chat. Uh, so Jay, <laughs> tell me about, tell me a bit about, about this list and, and who's on it. Uh, Toyota and Tesla are there more than anybody else. <laughs> I'll start with that. Um, uh, a quick top down look. So out of the six categories for best, um, uh, best value, Toyota or Tesla are in five out of the six the only thing they're not in are trucks, and that's totally cool. And the second big category is the lowest cost to own. And out of those five categories, they are in four of them, again, with the only ones they're not in being trucks. So EVs, any kind of electrified vehicle, are becoming more accepted and more normal. And they don't look funny and out of place and just because they're different. Um, you know, a Toyota Corolla hybrid looks the same as a tough old gasoline one. Uh, the same thing with the RAV4 as the Toyota examples. And they're just being more widely accepted. And yeah, there's rebates to kick around in some of the provinces, pretty much just BC and Quebec. But people are adopting them. People want to save money on fuel. People want to go further. And people are embracing some kind of electrification, whether it be their current vehicle or what they want to be their next vehicle. Yeah, and I guess when they get these sorts of uh, nods of approval on these sorts of lists, uh, it helps, right? Because it, a, a lot of sort of your average your average car buyer, perhaps not your deeply involved vehicle buyer, might look at this and think, oh, well, there it is on that list. It must be a decent vehicle. People rely on validation. It, it sounds like a jerky thing to say, and maybe it is, but that's what we have reviews on cars. Like, oh, did you know that the... You know, the Mazda 3 I'm looking at, one best this, second best that, and has the highest amount of safety ratings. Um, I'm going to put that on my list because it does all the things that I want it to. I want it to be safe for me and my family. I don't want to spend a lot of gas. And in the case of electrification, it's like, oh, the Model Y is the best-selling car in the world. I don't really like Elon, but I don't mind his cars, so 
I'm willing to put my personal feelings aside for crazy Elon and still buy a car, an EV that does all the things I want it to. Right. I was looking at some of the the criteria for the uh, for the cost factors. Right. And of course, you know, one of them is 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 fuel. So clearly, yeah. with the price of fuel going up, I mean, we're talking about that in BC this week again. Uh, last I looked, it was it was one ninety. I walked to work, so I always have to look at the. Ah, I know, I know, I know. I cheat. I cheat. I walk to work, so I'm. I'm it's I'm, not cheating. It's just reacting to your situation and surroundings. It is, and there's no gas station on my way. But last I looked, it was up about 190. So fuel, fuel is wow. a big deal. People must be considering that when you're doing that equation, whether to pay more for the EV or not. Um, you know, when you're looking at gas climbing up to around two dollars a liter, that'll do it easily. And that's just regular gas. If you go and get a luxury car, that two bucks turns into two fifty, two seventy five on the premium side of fuels. So electricity isn't nearly that cheap. But the big stumbling block is: do you have an extra? Two, three, four hundred dollars a month for your car payment to balance out what you're not paying in fuel. And you know, there's apparently a recession happening or on the way. And whether it does it shows up or doesn't, it still affects consumer behavior. And to me, it's it's the charging stations, and it goes back to Tesla having all these supercharger networks for full EVs. Um, I personally think regular hybrids are the way to go right now for the next three, four, or five years. You get the electrification, you get to save part of the planet, um, and you don't have to front load your costs all that much. Right. Whereas, I mean, I was, there was a a piece tonight about, uh, about the Tesla charging network. So there are 17,000 superchargers across the U.S. This is not Mm -hmm. Canada. This is the U.S. and 54,000 public chargers. That is not a lot of chargers for a lot of cars (laughs) being sold. That's my other question about EVs. If people start buying them you like hotcakes. Are there going to be enough chargers for everyone out there? Uh, yeah. The short answer is yes, there will be enough. Whether they work, totally different conversation. However, right. if you are buying an EV, I'm going to say 99.9% of those people will have a level two charger installed in their house. Right. So every morning you can wake up with a you know, proverbial full tank of gas or in this case, a full battery charge. And if you know if you're in for the sixty, seventy, eighty thousand bucks for an EV, what's another couple thousand bucks to get a level two charger installed? Yeah, and I suppose if you live in in a in a condo or a apartment building, they're they're coming, right? I mean, I know that uh, people mm-hmm. are talking about them more and more. Although it's slow going, though it's slow going. Lots of growing pains, lots of malfunctioning, not working uh, public charging stations. Um, some of them are habitual repeat offenders and. Some of the charging stations actually take the effort and time to go, you know what, uh, we've got six reports that charging station 149 isn't working. Let's get that fixed right away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're in line. They're in line. I mean, certainly anybody that we to the, anybody that texts into the show who who has some sort of vehement opposition, and include I'll include my dad and all that with uh, with EVs. It's just the charging station. It's it's the lack of control that one feels because of the charging station situation. Whereas with a gas station, I mean, you know, it's all been it's all programmed in our minds, right? But with EVs, that idea that somehow you're gonna you know. It's get all gonna you, know, you won't be able to find a working charger, and you're stuck with this hunk of metal. Right? That's, that's well, it's like one. It's like one out of every t- ten gas stations being out of gas and not telling you until you get there. 
Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I guess it's a better day for Elon Musk, and uh, or at least a banner week for Elon Musk and Tesla. Uh, Jay Kenna, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was uh, always a good time with you, Ben, and I'm always happy to, uh, to have good conversations with you. Yeah, we'll, we'll find something else to chat about in the next little while. <laughs> We'll go from what is talk of sort of creatures from another part of it, or vehicles at least, or phenomenon from elsewhere to what has looked like Mars right here on Earth, which is due to all this smoke. You might have seen the pictures of uh, New York City yesterday. The uh, New York Post had a very interesting front page title today that said blame, or front page headline that said blame Canada. They called it an apocalypse, as an E-H, apocalypse. Uh, smoky smoke from Canucks smoke turns New York into scary, smoky hellscape or something along those lines. All kinds of hyperbole, but it's not getting any better on this side of the border. Uh, the, to late today, we found out about an immediate evacuation order uh, for the residents of the district of Tumblr here in BC. That's about a uh, community of about 2,400 in northeastern BC due to a threat posed by a wildfire and the risk to life. Uh, now, Canadian Ranger Jolene Couture says rangers along with firefighters and police were working together to make sure everyone in town was notified about the need to leave. She says that heavy smoke hung in the air today and the order to evacuate uh, was came at a time when many were already prepared to leave. The majority of the people already had a prep bag ready. Tumblr Ridge is surrounded by forests, so this is not their first kick at the can with having to deal with forest fires. So you have your evacuation bag, and once everybody got the order, a lot already had their cars packed and, and ready to go. Now, quite a distance away in northern Quebec, the wildfire fight there. Again, flames have reached the doorstep of another municipality. Authorities say that flames are within 500 metres of Normetal, which is home to about 800 people. Uh, Provincial Public Security Minister Francois Bonnardel says thousands of Quebecers already forced to flee their homes will have to be patient. We're looking at, this, at these uh, fires um, every hour, every hour, and uh, we're hoping to tell people, to tell Quebecers that uh, they will be able to uh, to going back home, but in the short term, it's, it won't be possible. And this is a story that's repeating itself again and again and again and again. It is June the 8th, and as of this afternoon, the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre database showed 349 fires burning in nine provinces and two territories, 169 of them considered to be out of control. The amount of land burned has surpassed the 40,000 square kilometre mark, making 2023 wildfire season Canada's fourth worst on record before the summer has even started. We're still a few weeks away from that. At the current pace of burning, apparently the all-time record is expected to be surpassed sometime very soon, in June, in other words. So what is going on exactly? Because there's been lots of talk out there. The politicians are now out with all kinds of, you know, certain politicians, one side blaming everything on climate change, the other side pretending that climate change doesn't exist. Oh, it's not happening. It must be arsonists or some sort of thing. Or, or let's not talk about it. You're politicizing it. I mean, both sides, I have to say, I mean, climate change is a very important discussion, but you need to be nuanced about it. At the same time, people who deny that exists. I mean, Daniel Smith today, 
talking about arsonists was like you just want to scratch your head and think what are you talking what are you what are you talking about why would you worry about something like this apparently she was giving an interview today and she was concerned about arsonists uh, the premier of alberta the, new, the newly elected premier of alberta was concerned about arsonists uh, having been responsible for these fires like why in, as your province is burning is this really what you need to worry about of course not anyway we wanted to clear up why this is all going on with chris stockdale who's a fire research scientist at the northern forestry center part of the Canadian Forest Services. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on today. It's um, hard not to look at a map of all the fires burning. I guess uh, it, it's not the quantity, but the size. But uh, there are an awful lot of big fires burning. And it's, you know, it's June 8th. Absolutely. It's very early in the wildfire season. And uh, with our modern record keeping to date, this is the most area we've had burned in Canada. There have been years with more overall area burned by the end of the fire season. But, uh, well, it's a little early to call the final score. It is, but we're, but it's uh, this has been a very, a very uh, high-scoring first period, so to speak. When you see this many fires burning and this many big fires burning in so many different parts of the country, what's happening? It's largely weather-related. Um, we've had weather, which, of course, is related to climate. Um, we've had a massive heat dome that has moved its way across Canada over the last five weeks, as you indicated, uh, started in Alberta, and has just kind of steadily moved its way eastward across the country, and there's another wave of that heat coming into the west again. But we've had large areas of hot, dry, windy weather across the entire country which is unusual. Usually it's much more focused in smaller areas. Now, May is not, you know, the Fort Mac fire was in May. Alberta knows its, knows its uh, spring wildfire as well. Uh, but already the conditions were ripe. So this heat dome has just exacerbated an already precarious situation, no? Indeed. When the fires lit up in Alberta in early May, what we call the fire weather indices, like the things we use to measure how dangerous the fire potential conditions are, that are largely measuring like moisture in the fuels, relative humidity, accumulated precipitation, etc. The indices were already higher than they were during the Fort McMurray situation uh, in 2016. Right. A part of that too is sort of relative humidity. I, I think I was reading somewhere where relative humidity was just, you know, almost desert dry. Absolutely. That is one of the most significant variables when it comes to uh, wildfire danger. How are most of these starting? Because of course, you know, as always, this ends up in politics. We don't have to talk too much about that, but does it matter how they start? Because I get the impression what really matters is that once they start, how fast they spread and how big they burn is what we're watching. Well, indeed. I mean, so far, the number of fires that have occurred don't seem to be historically abnormal. I mean, we're having, every year we have lots of fires, but it's what happens when they do ignite. Indeed, some of the fires are lightning-caused, some of them are human-caused, and human-caused doesn't imply the reason they were caused. Frequently, it's accidental. But when the fire starts and what the weather conditions and the fuel conditions are, that's what determines how big those fires get. And to see fires getting supersized from Alberta to the Northwest Territories to Nova Scotia to Quebec to Manitoba to Ontario in the same spring, that is something we haven't observed before. Yeah, I mean, from your expert perch, uh, what are we watching happen here? Because, of course, I mean, many people point to the impacts of climate, and I think sometimes this turns into a, a binary argument, which is not 
not what this is. This is about climate making them much worse than they than they would be if 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 not for. Uh, so that the you know fires are you know, we've had forest fires over millennia here, but the the situations are now that it's simply making them bigger. And when they catch, they grow faster. And when they grow faster, they get bigger and more destructive. Absolutely. And indeed, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there when you said, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to try to blame one factor that is somehow like, it's climate. No, it's people lighting the fires. No, it's climate. No, it's people lighting the fires. I mean, right. the confluence of all of these things for fires to burn, it needs the right weather conditions, it needs the right fuel conditions, and topography influences that to a significant degree. Like fires burning in the mountains behave differently than fires burning on flat ground in the boreal forest. Topography never changes, obviously. Like, I mean, not on the timescale we're talking about, like, but the weather conditions, that's changing due to climate change. Exacerbating agents such as, you know, mountain pine beetle or spruce budworm or drought killing trees. So the, the more dead biomass you have in the system, also the more volatile the fuel complex can be. One of the things, and, and you mentioned this um, earlier, that there were, you know, we're seeing a heat dome, we're seeing the weather change again in the West because there's been a bit of a reprieve, not much, but a bit mm-hmm. of a reprieve in Alberta and BC. Uh, but, but what happens is that when it gets dry again, suddenly the fire conditions are even worse than they were before. At least it seems that way, that the whole situation is still very volatile, even after you know, a bit of rain and a bit of a reprieve. Well, the rain that we had, I mean, the rain we had here in Alberta was very helpful in tempering the fire conditions, but it didn't fully extinguish most of the fires. I mean, it, it drives, it gets rid of like some of the fire, but it was burning in very hot, dry, very large fuel complexes. So the fire sits there and burns on these logs, burns in the peat, like it burns in the ground. And as the weather warms up again, things begin to dry out. These fires wake up again. So we're now seeing significant renewed fire activity and we're concerned for the next you know, several days. We anticipate seeing many of these fires that looked like they were you know, being held we now will be testing to see whether the control measures put on those fires were indeed adequate. We see, of course, uh, a lot of talk from the White House. This is, you know, the smoke is clearly a concern and people have to be, politicians have to be seen to be doing something about it. Uh, But is the problem here a lack of firefighting personnel? Because it feels like there's simply too much out there to extinguish, that this is, you know, this is not a question of a lack of of resources, although there might have been too few to begin with, but it's very hard to tackle these these kinds of fires with you know uh humans alone absolutely and that's a very good point that you raised there human power is a very important variable in this but the human power really is most useful when fire condition danger conditions are either lower or during this period that we were just referring to when the rain came in to temper the fires that's when you can get people on there and to try to fully extinguish a perimeter of a fire but these fires were burning at intensities. I mean, just as a couple of examples for you, when fires exploded here in Alberta in early May, some of those fires were running at speeds of up to 100 meters per minute. They're moving at 100 meters per minute and putting off energy in excess of 10,000 kilowatts per meter squared. I know that number just sounds like a random it, number. It sounds big. Out. It sounds hot. Well, put it this way, it's a thousand times hotter than what humans can bear for 60 seconds. 10 kilowatts per meter squared for 60 seconds is fatal to humans. So imagine what 10,000 kilowatts is. That means that humans can't be in the path of these fires, so they can't directly attack the fires. 
Now, at a, at a lower threshold, at the 4,000 kilowatt threshold, is when we essentially consider that even aerial attack is unlikely to be successful. So what we mean by aerial attack are air tankers dropping water, dropping retardant, because the fire is burning so hot and moving so quickly, you simply can't put enough water down or enough retardant down to cover a whole perimeter of a fire. It's going to sneak through in many places, and you're just going to be chasing this monster across the landscape. Ultimately, when the fire danger gets that high, and that was an Alberta example, Quebec wasn't moving quite as quick, but even in Quebec, it was moving at about 40 meters per minute on June 2nd, and in also in excess of 10,000 kilowatts per meter squared. So evacuation is your number one issue at that time, is get people out of the way, make sure nobody gets hurt or killed by these fires. And so far, we've been very lucky and skilled, I would say, in order to... Uh, get all these evacuations successfully. Uh, Chris, the invariable question will be, how can we do a better job of this? I, I know back in, when you were doing your PhD, you focused a lot on on what we can do in, with this. Um, what are some of the quick answers that, that we could try to employ? Because we know what the problem is, but tackling it is tough. Well, the two elements that we have some control over are the fuel complex itself, which is the thing that is burning, and the impact side. So like wildfire risk is not only the fire itself, like it's evaluating the likelihood of the fire and how hot the fire will be. But then we also have to look at what the impact of that fire will be. So what we build our homes out of, how we plan our communities, how we plan infrastructure, these things all come into play. So on the fuel management side, there's a number of things that can be done from engaging the forest industry to determine where and when cut block layouts and even changing species composition on the landscape, like moving from less more flammable to less flammable trees in key locations. Prescribed fire is a very valuable tool in the toolbox wherein we intentionally light fires in periods of low fire danger to remove fuels for potential future dangerous fire weather conditions. Not everything is in, say, a forest management area where, you know, forest management companies involved, but, you know, around the edges of communities, you can manage what the surface fuel load looks like with a variety of techniques, also, again, involving potentially prescribed burning, sometimes using grazing, um, sometimes just manual removal of fuels. I strongly recommend viewers or listeners go to firesmart.ca, which is a national organization that provides all sorts of useful information for people to learn what they can do around their homes and properties and businesses to reduce wildfire risk from simple things like choosing different uh, roofing or siding materials, recognizing what you store next to your house, like during periods of fire danger, it's not a good idea to have your you know, wood pile by the house or propane tanks, barbecues, you know, in close proximity, what materials you say your deck or your roof are made from, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do to mitigate and minimize wildfire danger on the landscape. And I guess this year, I mean, every year there's big, you know, every few years there's a major fire situation, whether it's Fort Mac or Lytton or now, and we tend to move on and forget. And, but this one feels like a wake-up call because it's happening in so many places at once and the smoke is hitting the places where people don't normally worry about this stuff. I absolutely agree with that because we in the fire science community have for many years been trying to use momentum from things like the Slave Lake Fire or Kelowna in 2003, Fort McMurray, the big wildfires that threatened BC in 2017, 2018, 2021, but they always seem to be localized or like, you know, maybe the region cares, maybe a given community cares, maybe a given province cares about it, but, you know, then they have another couple of years with low fire danger and they move on and they kind of forget about it. 
but indeed seeing so much of Canada affected at the same time, we really hope will get people to pay a little bit more attention. I mean, only the Yukon Territory, Prince Edward Island, Nunavut, and Newfoundland have not had to evacuate people yet this year. That's a remarkable statistic. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Prime Minister today, of course, acknowledged uh, that millions of Canadians are being impacted by the smoke from nearly 450 active wildfires burning across the country. A, a great, you know, a big chunk of them out of control. All those eerie yellow orange skies that we've been seeing in Quebec and Ontario and again south of the border. They're likely to last for a couple of more days. Uh, the New York Post's front page was very dramatic today. Uh, it said, Blame Canada, splashed across it. Uh, the title was called A-Pocalypse, as an E-H, Pocalypse. And um, Canuck Wildfire Plunges New York City into Eerie Smoky Hell, it was called. So very dramatic. But listen, these are kinds of things... On the West Coast, we get used to sort of this wildfire smoke because it happens uh, just about every year. There's a little dose of wildfire smoke either that comes up from the U.S. or comes from elsewhere in Canada. But, you know, not so much in places like Toronto and Ottawa and, and obviously New York City where it's been apocalyptic the past little while. Um, see, ABC's Trevor Alt describes what it's like in New York these days. New York City skyline has been photographed from every angle, but it has never looked the way it's looked in the past 24 hours. And we watched as it advanced from a very heavy fog to instead yesterday looking like we were on another planet, all while receiving those terrifying warnings from officials that the air we're breathing is dangerous. Well, indeed, and therein lies the issue. Professor Lauren Wold of the Ohio State University School of Medicine says the haze that's turning the skies orange on both sides of our border simply is not healthy. You know, the levels that people, if they were to be outside, especially if they're exercising, breathing faster, um, they're going to be inhaling particulates at concentrations that normal smokers would inhale. Now, one of the issues here, of course, is this idea between outside and inside. Now, clearly being outside, doing physical activity outside is dangerous in, in these sorts of circumstances. But indoors can also be an issue. Um, you know, basically people are being told to stay home and that it raises the issue about air quality inside. A New York Times opinion piece today put it this way. We just lived through a pandemic caused by a tiny virus floating in the air. We are now experiencing wildfires that not only devastate communities and landscapes, but also send out gigantic plumes of smoke that it can affect millions of people downwind. If the pandemic was whispering to us about air quality, if the pandemic was whispering to us about air quality, the wildfires are screaming to us about it. Why aren't we doing more about the quality of the air we breathe? Well, to help answer that question, joining me now is Jeffrey Siegel. He's a professor of civil engineering at the University of Toronto. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This subject uh, seems to have been on a lot of people's minds a lot more in the last few years, first with the pandemic, now with this, with wildfires. Um, are we indeed paying more attention to indoor air quality these days? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was really important before the pandemic, before wildfires. It'll be really important afterwards. And yes, I think we're paying more attention. Um, sometimes I wonder whether that attention will be sustained. But for now, we're definitely paying attention. It's interesting when you look at some of the, you know, some of the analogies that people draw, but you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't accept a glass of half dirty water, for instance, but you would accept a lungful of half dirty air, even indoors, that we haven't paid more attention to this in the past. Why have we been negligent about it? 
Yeah, there's several reasons, but I think the biggest one is it's really, really hard to regulate. It's very hard to tell people what to do in their own buildings, their own spaces, especially our homes. And if you think about you know, what causes indoor air pollution, sure, some of it's coming from outdoor air, especially something like a wildfire. But a lot of it is things that are so intimately related to what we do in buildings. The example I always say is cooking. And right. so, you know, we cook, cooking generates a ton of pollutants that can be quite harmful. But, you know, you can't tell people not to cook. So I think that, that the, the, the kind of lack of regulation, it's very hard to get people to care about it. The other thing is, of course, you don't see it. If you have a glass of dirty water, you see that that water is dirty. The air we breathe, especially indoors, is in fact quite dirty. But of course, it looks like air. Clean air and dirty air look exactly the same. Indeed. And yet we spend so much time indoors and other things in our lives are regulated that you would think we'd be, we'd, we'd have spent many years searching for ways to do this. But the standards, the regulations aren't, aren't really, I mean, there are some standards, but, but not many. You're absolutely right. There are not many standards at all. The most common are ventilation standards. And those apply at the time the building was built or a major renovation. After that, we don't pay any attention to it. And, and it's, 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 it's a problem for sure. What kind of impact does it have at this point in time, given where we sit with how much regulation is not in place? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, there's a whole group of kind of acute issues. So I would put COVID and infectious disease as one example. Um, asthma, especially kids with asthma is another example. So there's a whole bunch of those acute effects. And chances are kind of we think about those a little more. But the actual really serious health effects are chronic the decades of exposure accumulated at the end of our life. And it's systemic, the specific health endpoints. There are certainly some cancers, some reproductive issues, uh, but there are also you know, a wide range of cardiovascular issues, increased risk of stroke. Uh, you know, just the, If I were to list health effects, we'd be here for a very long time. Other than those acute things, it's not like something you breathe now is going to cause you an issue right away. It's going to be increase your risk in the future. One of the things that's interesting about wildfire smoke is that unlike most of the times, yes, we can't see it, but we can certainly smell it, right? We can yeah. smell the air has changed even within yeah. our homes. And that could be one of the reasons why we're talking about it a lot more these days. They sort of said this is, you know, if, if the pandemic was was a big wake-up call for the quality of indoor air, this is a reminder of, of just how pervasive dirty air could be. And again, from the inside, you mentioned lots of different origins of our dirty air indoors. But when it comes from the outside, we seem to be much more aware of it, especially when we can smell it. Yeah, absolutely. And smell is really interesting because smell isn't associated with health effects, right? There are some things that don't smell at all or that smell good and are bad for us. There are things that smell bad but aren't really bad for us. Wildfire smoke is an interesting one because it, it, it smells. We notice it. We can argue about whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's probably a matter of opinion, but it's certainly bad for us. Indeed. Uh, so where to now then? Because there were a lot of, there's certainly, I mean, anybody who spent time, and it's funny that the buildings, you know, where we sort of send our kids every day are some of the ones that are the most prone to having bad air. Uh, there was a lot of talk during the pandemic about the need to improve indoor air quality, especially in places where a lot of people congregate. Uh, how far along are we, you know, in improving it period now? I mean, here we are a few years later. I know it doesn't happen overnight, but uh, are, are we moving forward? I mean, I think there's a lot of different stories, but overall, we have not moved very far forward compared to, to where we should be. You know, we underinvested in the pandemic, and there was a lot of reasons for that. 
Uh, and then, you know, we have these extreme events. It might be a wildfire today. It might be, you know, a train derailment or an industrial accident tomorrow. Uh, there can be things like flooding and moisture problems. And so there's kind of a long list of problems. And because it's not something we think about, we don't really as a society want to invest in it. But the school's example that you raise is so interesting and so important because at this point, there's overwhelming research that if we improve the indoor air quality in schools, we'll see you know higher test scores, reduced absenteeism, better cognitive function. There's even studies that show that students will have higher salaries when they graduate. The reasons to invest in indoor air are certainly wildfires, COVID. Those are reasons by themselves. But we should really be doing this because the problem, the big problem I have is that we always talk about the costs. Oh, it's going to cost so much to ventilate better, put in better filters. But we never say, well, what's the cost of not doing those things? And it doesn't take very much of a health effect for the cost to be of doing these things to be, you know, small compared to the the benefit and avoided health, as well as all those other things I mentioned that we get. I was reading something that in the States, they had sort of launched a program to try to improve indoor air quality. And most, a lot of the money went unused because people didn't know how to apply for it. I mean, I think you touched on this earlier. It's it's a difficult problem to tackle because it is literally everywhere. Right. And, and the reason I love studying indoor air, but the thing that makes it so challenging is that every building is kind of like a puzzle. What works in the building you're in right now would be very different from what would work for the building I'm in right now. And so part of the problem is we don't really have like a, a, a group of individuals. We don't really have, you know, a, a process. I mean, we do have a process, but, but we, we haven't really implemented it. And that's really what we need to do. We need to kind of go building by building and, and address, you know, the big risks. You know, certainly some places in Canada have much more of a consistent wildfire threat, for example. So we want to think about how we're protecting those buildings maybe differently than a building in a big city that's near traffic or near an industrial source. Jeffrey, I mean, I realize how difficult it is for, for buildings, especially old buildings, to start to fix the air that, that people breathe inside. But I gather there are things we can do individually to try to improve the air uh, within our own living spaces. Yeah, absolutely. So I usually divide things into the things that are the same as, as what we should do for COVID or other infectious diseases and things that are different. So the things that are the same, um, a good HEPA filter, uh, you know, is always going to be helpful. It's especially helpful for something like a wildfire, uh, but it's helpful more broadly. And, you know, the do-it-yourself filters that, that many people have seen and are building are great. In fact, their origin was, was before COVID and was for wildfire smoke. And so, you know, filtration is really important. Masks are also important. Uh, you really need a good, good respirator type mask, like an N95. And that becomes especially important when you're outside or when you're in a building that's leaky or well connected to the outside, that becomes really important. And so um, all those masks we bought during COVID, very useful now as well. So those are the things that are the same. The things that are different is we really have to be careful about going outside. I mean, there's some shockingly high levels of air pollution outside uh, because of wildfire plumes. Certainly vulnerable people, kids with asthma, people with COPD, uh, elderly folks should not be going outside. Uh, they should be staying inside. And when we all go outside, we should be wearing a really well-fitted, good respirator mask. 
On the building side, ventilation is a good thing from a lot of perspectives, but when there's a lot of pollution outside, it's not such a good thing. So we should really be looking at limiting, you know, we are, we need some amount of ventilation no matter what, but we should really be limiting ventilation in buildings that, that, that have control over that and only bring in as much outdoor air as we need and filtering it quite well uh, before we um, expose people to it. More broadly, what we have to think about, I always talk about how, you know, wildfires and a lot of indoor air quality issues hit different communities really differently in different places in Canada. And so we really have to think about, you know, people who don't have control over their environments. That's true of many of us in, in our homes because we don't have sophisticated HVAC systems in our homes. People can't necessarily afford uh, filters, that sort of thing. And so we really have to think about this idea of like community safe spaces. So, you know, every every apartment complex should have a space that is, you know, well ventilated with filtered clean air, positively pressurized filters inside so that the people can go there and be safe. And we should think about, you know, wildfires are, are not our only issue. Uh, often they're associated at times when there's extreme heat events as well. So kind of this idea of a cooling center that's also a safe space is something we should also be investing in in our communities. Yeah, clean air shelters, more or less. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. I, and it must be, I mean, from the time you started in this to now, the, the recognition that something like wildfire smoke is going to become more and more common things have changed very quickly. The, the the awareness of it, but also what we're going to have to do to mitigate this. I mean, this seems to be something we're going to have to get used to and therefore building these sorts of uh, things. I mean, I don't think I would have, ever would have thought of a clean air shelter 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a little over 20 years and certainly there's been a lot more conversations, especially with the pandemic and now with wildfires. And I think that the real challenge for people like me is to really, you know, kind of maintain the interest. We have these episodic events and the pandemic was a particularly extreme example, but, you know, the wildfire smoke will dissipate. And and I think that, you know, it's very important to think about how can we start making these structural investments to really provide a safe environment. And, and I never like to be alarmist or be the bearer of bad news, but there's going to be a lot more things that happen with the indoor environment with increasing frequency because of climate change. And so a, a, an example that many parts of Canada have already experienced is increased flooding and the moisture problems that result from it. And, you know, we can operate in a reactive mode, which is always kind of slow and imperfect. And we would really do well as a society to think about investing in some of these things. We know what some of the problems are going to be. So let's start making our, our buildings and our communities you know, safer so that we can, we can get people through those events much more safely. You know, I suspect that the resistance to it is not so much, uh, you know, it, it's basically just easier to put off, right? Because as you mentioned, once the smoke dissipates, it just feels like the air in your room has returned to something like normal. But you mentioned, of course, that uh, that's not always the case, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, there is a big role, like I like to talk about technological solutions, things like filters and, and so forth. But really, there's a huge role for, for public education. People have to know what the big sources are, know that, oh, you know, this is a particularly bad time to be doing this, or, hey, I should open a window or ventilate more when I'm doing this. And I think that kind of very basic information, like we haven't really done a good job getting that. And, and people know, for instance, 
people who live in older houses often, you know, run the the taps a little bit, uh, especially if they know there's lead pipes. So that kind of basic knowledge is comes from other environmental systems, and we should really be thinking about what are the same lessons that people can have for indoor air. There are tens of millions of people around the world who live in cities with bad air quality who are used to this. We can learn from them too, and how they've put up with or dealt with bad air. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, regulation, as I mentioned, is tough, but there's ways of of, of building things and, and making things so that it's a little bit easier to make a building that's going to be safer for the occupants. Well, Jeffrey Siegel, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Speaking of things that know no borders, what about unidentified flying objects? Let's go to Las Vegas, where this story just came out last night, so the, the, the timing of it couldn't have been better. Um, but a Las Vegas family claimed something crashed in their backyard, prompting, prompting them to call 911 about non-human beings. The thing is, apparently this time, several other people saw this object, allegedly. Uh, CBS 8 News in Vegas reported on this last night and shared a 911 call that was made back on April the 30th. Here there's like an eight-foot person beside it, and another one's inside, and it has big eyes and looking at us, and it's still there. Okay, where is this on your property? Uh, in my backyard. I swear to God, this is not a joke. This is actually we so terrified of it. So there's two people or two subjects that are in your backyard? Correct, and they're very large. They're okay. like eight foot. Nine feet, ten foot, I don't know. They're, they, look like, they look like aliens to us. Big eyes, they have big eyes, okay. like, like I can't explain it, and big mouth. They're shiny eyes, and, and they're not human. They're 100% they're not human. Yeah, that was the 911 call back on April the 30th, right? I mean, you can tell what they're talking about. But there was a police response to this. Body cameras picked up something streaking in the sky around just before midnight that night. Uh, here's Alex Stone with more on that. 911 emergency. It was early in the morning on May 1st. In this 911 call audio obtained by ABC News, a man reports something crashed in his family's backyard and there were non human beings alive and moving. And it has big eyes and looking at us. Police body camera audio picks it up from there as police respond. Pull advisor, we see any uh, little green men. They arrive and question the family looking in the backyard, but if something was there, it was gone. It was like a big creature. A big creature. The officers joke with the family. If those nine-foot beings come back, don't call us. Right beforehand, an officer's body camera caught something streak across the sky. Alex Stone, EBC News. Well, uh, police in Vegas uh, uh, closed the investigation with no concrete answers. But this all came the same day there was a report that sort of caught a lot of attention here in Canada that there had been a first-of-its-kind international meeting on unidentified flying objects held at the Pentagon. And it was a U.S.-led briefing to visitors from nations of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance, which we talk about a lot these days, which includes Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, the CBC reported that the Department of National Defense confirmed that Canada had, had indeed been there. And uh, the meeting was led by a representative from the Royal Canadian Air Force. So we thought, isn't that interesting? So you have this going on, which is sort of more like your quintessential uh, report of a, of a sighting. But behind the scenes, they're meeting at the Pentagon and actually talking about this. So joining me now with more of this is Chris Rutowski. He's a science writer, a ufologist, and author of the Canadian UFO Report. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Chris. Glad to be here. Thanks. 
So I guess to start with the Pentagon meeting, because as all this is unfolding, uh, we, we learn that there was this meeting being held. And I guess there's been more and more attention about these phenomenon being paid to by at least the American um, defense and, and intelligence community. Tell me a bit about what the, what the meeting could have been about. What could they have been talking about? Well, as you mentioned, Five Eyes is a consortium of a number of countries. It uh, dates back to the Second World War, as a matter of fact. And, uh, you know, while this was the first meeting officially on uh, unidentified anomalous phenomena, which was the term they're calling it now, uh, they've certainly talked about it in previous years uh, because, uh, you know, the the, uh, uh, the consortium includes uh, the uh, Canadian Forces Intelligence Command, which is an agency we don't really hear about very much in Canada. It's sort of like the uh, communication security establishment and, uh, and, you know, and it has uh, a lot of jurisdiction over well, electronic intelligence such as, oh, you know, people's cell phones, uh, uh, tapping into the uh, Internet, and certainly into radio programs that are broadcast uh, over the airwaves as well. So, uh, uh, you know, they've been certainly talking about this because Canada is joint uh, uh, in uh, in NORAD, and, of course, NORAD has been involved in UFO or UAP investigations, and, uh, you know, we have many, many documented reports uh, through NORAD of UFOs in Canada, and there have been uh, joint exercises where uh, American uh, uh, pilots have flown into Canadian airspace uh, in response to uh, UFOs that were seen over Canada. So, you know, there is this this back and forth, and there has been some, you know, talk about this for many years, but because the Pentagon recently uh, has been doing a lot more and being more public about its investigations into UAP and UFOs, as they formerly were called, Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know there, there is a more public awareness of what's really going on, and uh, the uh, American public is learning a lot more about what its own government is doing regarding the phenomenon as well. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, of course, we, everyone thinks back to the balloons, right, and how that sort of was one of those examples of how this all works as far as this, the system uh, works and the collaboration and NORAD and so forth. Um, I, I was interested to see, of course, I mean, you've been doing this report now for many, many years, uh, back in the late 80s, since 1989. Still two UFO sightings are reported each day in this country. Yeah, you know, we're still hovering somewhere around 700 to 1,000 cases uh, a year which is certainly nothing to sneeze at. And uh, our database is quite quite significant. We have something like 25,000 cases just over the past 30 years or so. Uh, and, you know, the, the typical report is a, a light in the sky, but there are other cases that, that seem to be a little more substantial. Uh, but the vast majority seem to have, you know, some sort of reasonable explanation or maybe we don't have enough information to explain them in one way or another. Uh, but there is a certain residual amount of, you know, a few percentage of cases every year. And that's exactly in line with what the Pentagon has said in terms of uh, what they've been receiving. Uh, at the uh, NASA briefing just last week, uh, the Pentagon spokesperson mentioned that they have, you know, uh, you know single-digit percentages of cases that seem anomalous, which is very much in line with what we have here in Canada. And, of course, Canada is participating in, uh, you know, in the uh, Five Eyes program, but certainly is working uh, with the Pentagon on uh, what we have with regard to Transport Canada cases, with regard to cases from national defense, and certainly some civilian cases as well. 
Right. I, I was impressed that, that you know, 768 people, uh, you know, I, I gather that was the number for 2022, uh, would take the time to fill something out. I mean, that's, that's, that's in of <laughs> itself pretty impressive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's uh, even more than 768 because that's 768 cases. And the right. typical UFO report has more than one witness. Uh, so you can sort of say there's, you know, quite a number of people in Canada. In fact, 10% of the Canadian population believe they've seen UFOs, which is not bad. You know, it's a, it's a significant amount, you know, three or four million people. Right. When you use the term like unidentified anomalous phenomenon, it also makes more sense, right? Because I think we always think of UFOs as being sort of something something that we recognize sort of ship-like. But phenomenon is a much more interesting way of putting it because that's sort of what it is, unlike that Vegas call that we played uh, off the top, which was uh, – we don't need to necessarily go into that one. I think the police will try and figure that one out. Um, but what are what is the typical – you mentioned it's sort of uh, seeings of lights and so on, but I gather Quebec is sort of the province that leads – the way in this, and then Ontario, I guess that's, you know, population, right? Population? Yeah, typically we're looking at population as the driver for this, that, you know, it's the, the reverse of the tree falling in the forest, that, you know, you have a large population, you're going to have a larger population that's going to be able to see something in the sky if it's really there. So uh, we typically find that the larger uh, centers of population have the most UFO reports, but sometimes there's little... Uh, hiccups in the data, and uh, last year Quebec had more cases than they should have uh, based on population. Some years it turns out that uh, based on population, it's the Maritimes. Some years it's right. uh, it's Alberta or BC. Thirteen minutes was the average uh, sighting, which which I thought was really when I read that stat, I'm like that that seems long. It is, and it's long enough that you know if somebody's watching something, they hey. They have enough time to, you know, get a camera or poke somebody next to them and say, are you watching this with me or phone a friend, that type of thing. Uh, but, of course, the longer the case uh, goes on, you know, the more likely it is to be a prosaic object. And we have reports uh, from last year that went on for two or three hours, and most of those turned out to be stars and planets and things like that. So uh, it's not necessarily an indication of the, uh, the report itself. Uh, but the fact that averaging it out, uh, you know, there's some cases that are of long duration and uh, a lot that are, you know, just a few seconds. Uh, the UAP task force was refused access to um, a broad crash retrieval program. When you say crash retrieval, what do you mean? Uh, these are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft, if you will. Non-human, exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft from another species. We do, yeah. How many? Quite a number. You're kidding. No. News Nation's Ross Cuthart there interviewing David Grush, who is a, a former combat officer, decorated former combat officer, who served at the, the U.S. Department of Defense's representative to the UAP task force from 2019 to 2021. He's turned whistleblower now. Um, with us this half hour is Chris Rutowski, a science writer and ufologist and author of the Canadian UFO Report. Uh, this has been, uh, Chris, just to put this into context, there was an article written a few years ago in the New York Times back in 2017 by Leslie Keene and Ralph Blumenthal and Hel Helene Cooper. And then they've written about this one as well in another uh, publication. Uh, this is really interesting because I don't know what to make of his claims, but the fact that it's lifting the lid off conversations going on within the establishment is really interesting to me. Yeah, I do find it puzzling. I mean, a lot of the stuff that he's talking about, we've heard from people before, mm -hmm. uh, claims about crash saucers and uh, the retrieval of uh, uh, bodies from, uh, you know, whatever was 
piloting these things. Uh, so that in itself isn't new. Uh, the other thing, of course, we have to note, he never saw this himself. Uh, this is uh, what he's heard and, and was told second and third hand in a few documents. Um, but what is very strange is, I mean, he certainly uh, has the credibility in terms of credentials. Uh, he actually was on the uh, uh, UAP task force when it was first uh, formed. Um, so he was sort of on the inside. And while he's on the inside, as he says, you know, they, they said there's nothing to be seen. But he said that while he was in there, uh, he, you know, was told all these other stories, and he was unable to, you know, do anything with them. So now that he's out of it, uh, he is going public, and it's very strange because a lot of, as I say, what he, what he's saying just it doesn't doesn't strike uh, strike me as being completely true. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's going on the record; he's testifying under oath. Uh, the Inspector General of the United States is is taking on the case, uh, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, as the whistleblower coming forward and is protecting him and investigating what he has to say. And, you know, the United States government is uh, not um, not disputing what he says. What uh, it's doing is saying is that there's nothing in his testimony uh, that's classified or confidential. He's not breaching any confidentiality, but they can't say whether it's true or not. And it's it's a matter of its ongoing investigation and as I say, it's very puzzling because, uh, you know, he's making some statements that, that just don't seem true. Um, and yet, you know, here's somebody who should know what he's talking about making these statements. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I, the, the substance of what he's talking about is obviously disputed by many. I think what's interesting, though, is that, I, you know, we've always sort of the question for the for the rest of us is always, is there anything out there? And it seems like this is a conversation that they've been having within security circles for a very long time, and it's been quite heated. And I don't think a lot of us were aware of that. No, in fact, there's a direct conflict with uh, uh, the uh, the head of the uh, the task force or the uh, the Pentagon's uh, investigation into this because uh, he's already uh, contradicted and rebutted uh, this whistleblower by saying, you know, no, we, we see no evidence of, of anything extraterrestrial, whereas he is saying, oh, yeah, there is. And what do you do with that type of thing? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess where to from here? I mean, that's the whole point of, of a meeting like the one that happened at the Pentagon last month is you, you bring together these people. I mean, clearly people are paying attention to this issue, whatever it may whatever it may mean, right? And that's that's what's interesting about it. Yeah, and it's certainly driving the conversation around the world. I mean, we're talking about it here. There were certain people talking about it on various television stations and, and radio stations uh, throughout the entire world because we have this fascination with this. And uh, you know, I, I suspect that uh, a lot of what he was told was possibly uh, misinformation or disinformation, that maybe right. he's being played by somebody. Maybe, you know, people can go into the conspiracy vein and just say there's some sort of cover-up that's that's holding him out and uh, to, to dry, I suppose. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's nothing that we haven't heard before, but he's telling it really well. Right. And, and again, just to, I feel like that we've entered a new phase of talking about this, certainly in America, where they're, they're being quite open about, about what they do and do not know. And that will lend itself to people saying they're covering stuff up and others, you know, I mean, but at least the conversation feels like it's surfaced a lot more than it probably did back in 89 when you started the report. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, even the, the whistleblower, apparently, I, I haven't heard there's a, a three part or a three hour interview that's going to be airing sometime soon. And uh, apparently in it, uh, he uh, mentions Canada in some way. And I, I'm oh, really? dying to know what, what <laughs> exactly he says about Canada. 
Uh, well, Chris Rutowski, thank you as always for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you. This next phenomenon is anything but unidentified and anything but anomalous. It is a massive, gargantuan brown glob of seaweed, 8,000 kilometers wide. It's called the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt, and it's on the move. It's supposed to wreak havoc on beaches in Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean this summer. It is a. It weighs 13 million tons, they think. That's how big it is. Um, here's what one visitor to a South Beach, uh, one visitor in Miami on South Beach had to say recently. It's been like more and more, and like sometimes you cannot even get in the water because it's all in the border. Yeah, I mean it's it's bad. I've seen it. I've actually I've seen it on the beaches of Playa del Carmen. It is there is just so much of it. And of course, when it starts to rot, it doesn't smell. It doesn't smell very good. Uh, it has sort of a rotten egg smell to it. And then to top it all off, recently scientists came out and said there was in fact a real life threat from the piles of decomposing algae, namely high levels of the flesh eating vibrio bacteria bacteria lurking in the vegetation. So we wanted to clear this all up because not only was it bad enough for beachside communities as is, but also now this latest thing. So Kevin Johnson is a professor of oceanography with the Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, Florida on the so-called Space Coast. It's known for producing some of NASA's finest as well as uh, oceanography. Of course, it's right on the ocean. Kevin Johnson joins us now. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. We've read so much, I think, from where, you know, for Canadians, many people are familiar with Florida, obviously, and, and Mexico and other, other parts where this is an issue. Uh, but tell me a bit about sargassum. What is it? Sargassum is a seaweed, and it's different than most other seaweeds in that, you know, most seaweed is anchored to the bottom of the seafloor, whereas sargassum floats. It has little structures that are like balloons, and it keeps it floating right at the surface. The Sargasso Sea, in which is a region of the northern Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. is known for having huge amounts of sargassum. No coincidence, those names are so similar. Just huge, huge square miles of mats of this, of this seaweed that floats at the surface of the ocean, usually out away from the continents, out in the middle of the ocean. And now we've seen it, clearly anyone who's been somewhere in the Caribbean or in Mexico or in Florida of late has noticed it because it's become an issue. But, but what has changed of late? Well, if, if for, for decades, if you went to Florida beaches or to the Caribbean and you saw dried seaweed washed up on the beach in stripes, that's been a situation for a long time. Those dead seaweed are most likely sargassum. When they're out in the ocean, they're kind of a, a golden a golden brown color when they're alive. But when they wash up on the beach and they start to dry out in the sun, they turn dark brown and then almost black. And so if you've seen these black stripes of, of vegetation on the beach, it's most likely sargassum. And, and like I said, it's, it's, it's always been on the beaches. And the, the reason is that it's always been out there in the Atlantic Ocean. So anytime we have currents moving towards the shore or winds blowing um, those currents and the sargassum floating at the surface towards the beaches, some of that's going to end up on the beaches. What's changed recently is that in the last decade, researchers studying sargassum by satellite have determined that the that the area of the sargassum coverage in the Atlantic is greatly increasing. And along with that increase in area out in the middle of the ocean comes more of the sargassum washing ashore at the beaches. And what's causing the, I mean, I gather part of it is agricultural runoff. Uh, what is causing it to grow in size so so quickly and, and so noticeably for those on shore? 
Well, our best guess is nutrients, which um, agricultural runoff would be part of that. Nutrients are basically the the fertilizers that help things to grow. We buy nutrients to add to our gardens to help them grow. But when we have runoff from agriculture, that excess nitrogen and phosphorus, especially those nutrients, um, can help to drive algal blooms in coastal regions and in the open ocean. Some researchers have connected this sargassum increase specifically to um, nutrients being brought in by large rivers from the continents, especially like the Amazon or right. the Congo River. And then some, some nutrients from dust from b- blown off of the Saharan desert in Africa. The impact it's having, I mean, we read a lot about it in the North American context, the Mexico context, places where you know, people are prone to travel. Snowbirds tend to go, right? I think that's where we've noticed the issue as people who don't live in the communities. But it has caused some real serious issues for those areas reliant on tourism, for instance. Sure. And, and the number one legitimate issue is that when there's a lot of that sargassum that washes on the beach, it covers the sand. And if it's really thickly layered there, it can be hard to find a pleasant space to, to park your towel yeah. and lay out on the beach. So, so that's an issue, um, although it can just be raked aside or pushed aside and you can make your own sandy spot. As the seaweed rots, it can get a little smelly. When it does that, just like anything that's rotting, there's, there's hydrogen sulfide, which is colloquial name for that is rotten egg gas. So it's, it's stinky. But um, you know, out, out there on the beach um, in the, it, with the breeze, usually it's not overwhelming. But if you're right there next to the seaweed, you might get a little whiff of that, that rotten egg gas. More recently, there's been a little of a kerfuffle, if you will, right. about the uh, the bacteria that may be associated with the sargassum, some of which um, have been known to cause pretty serious infections in humans and even even kill some people. Yeah, tell me about the bacteria thing, because that was the latest headline, right? I mean, clearly, I think a lot of people who've seen it, I mean, I remember seeing it, I think, in uh, in Playa del Carmen in the Yucatan Peninsula, and there were mountain. I mean, they clear the stuff, right? But they were, I mean, it looked like an agricultural function they were doing, because there was so much of it, and they pile it so high. And then all of a sudden, the headlines of late have been something about, you know, bacteria and plastic debris. What's going on? So so these these bacteria in the genus Vibrio, are, are prolific. If in coastal regions, you will find these Vibrio bacteria almost everywhere you go. One of the many thousands and thousands of bacterial species that are present in coastal areas, it's just that the concentrations of Vibrio tend to get elevated when you have um, a lot of pollution. And, and so that causes a problem. But even, even when there's no pollution and it's relatively clean water, you're going to find bacteria in the water. Bacteria are everywhere. Some researchers at FAU, that's Florida Atlantic University, they surveyed the sargassum for bacterial associations, and they found Vibrio associated with the sargassum. As you would find Vibrio in biofilms on, on the seafloor, on sand grains, in the water column, and just about you know, on the sides of ships, just about everywhere you would look, you will find Vibrio. They, they didn't determine a concentration or relative abundances of Vibrio. So it hasn't been demonstrated that the, the Vibrio association with sargassum represents an elevated amount of Vibrio or an increased threat. Professor Johnson, apparently 2023, and you you were interviewed about this recently, 2023 is meant to be a bad year. Then you add this sort of this bacteria thing on top of it. And I guess everyone's getting a little just a little panicky about it. I think things have been a little hyperbolic with regard to the bacteria. Now, let me say a word about that. If you're at the beach or in the water or in an estuary, 
just about anywhere in the world. There are pathogenic bacteria there, sometimes in elevated amounts, sometimes in very low amounts. But the main danger in those situations would be if you have an open wound. So if you have an open wound, you should be careful about going in the water and maybe avoid it. And when and if you even if you don't have an open wound, when you're done, you should wash up. I think those things will generally protect most people. The, about a decade ago in our local estuary here, there was a man who who got a, a scratch on his leg, maybe a little more extreme than that, a scrape on his leg. And he chose to ignore it and, and stayed in the water. And that got infected and he ended up dying. So oh, okay. it, 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 can, it can be a serious thing. Generally speaking, they haven't demonstrated that the, the Vibrio associated with the sargassum represents an elevated concentration or an elevated threat. So, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you have an open wound, um, avoid it. Be, care- be careful. Take care of yourself. Right. But other than that, I think that I think that it's not too much of a danger. I guess there was some concern around all those. I mean, there's a lot of beach cleanups and people who sort of start cleaning up this stuff. And that was some of the concern was around them right. to like exposure right. to a lot of it, which isn't your average tourist, obviously. Sure. And I actually had a call today from a person who organizes beach cleanups and she right. had the, she had that exact question. And so I, I, I told her that if, Hey, if, if people have open wounds, um, they, they should be extra careful. It's always a good idea when doing a beach cleanup to say, wear wear gloves, some personal protective equipment, the beaches can have hypodermic needles and the trash can sometimes be have, have other pathogens associated with it. So for, for reasons aside from the sargassum, picking up trash on the beach, it's probably wise to to wear protective equipment. Along those lines, you know, if, if you're wearing uh, uh, latex gloves or something like that, that should be ample protection for you when handling sargassum. 2023, I guess, I mean, this has been a lot of the reporting this year, that 2023 is expected to be a particularly bad year. Uh, is that the case? And how? where do you begin to fix this problem? Because it feels like it's one of those issues that's transnational and that, you know, a lot of coastal communities pay the price for it. It is. It is transnational. It's a, it's a, it's a not just sargassum, but the things driving sargassum, right? The, the, the pollution in the, in the Atlantic ocean, some of that comes from the atmosphere and these things do traverse the world, right? It's a global problem. And if it's not sargassum, it's some other algal bloom or something being driven by excess nutrients, something we call eutrophication, eutrophication or excess nutrients driving algal blooms is a global problem in most coastal regions and estuaries. The uh, the sargassum problem in the Atlantic has been steadily increasing over the last decade, and we've been viewing that by satellite. It, it has pretty much been, been getting heavier and heavier every year for the last few years. However, I don't know if you saw this, the USF, where they've done a lot of this satellite investigation, just released an up, some updated data indicating that uh, May of this year had had a little less sargassum than they've been right. projecting. Usually in past years, May has has been a continued increase in the concentration of sargassum. Well, this year it actually decreased by 15%. So that's an interesting thing. They're kind of scratching their heads. No one's really sure why that is, but I suspect it has something to do with a decrease in nutrients. Something's caused in the atmosphere or in the water, a, a little fewer nutrients, and that may be resulting in a decrease in the sargassum. The, uh, so that hopefully will be reflected on the beaches of the Caribbean and Florida, that there'll be you know 15% less showing up. And that might be later in the season too, because most of the decrease they've seen is in the Eastern Atlantic Ocean, moreover by Africa, and that'll take a while to get here. And I guess just looking forward, it has the, um, the impact. Does it have a significant impact on, on sea life or not? Out at sea, 
sargassum is a tremendous benefit to the right. to the ecology and the habitat. Sargassum is itself a, a little forest floating at the surface of the ocean, and there are dozens of species that live in and amongst the forest. Little little fish and little shrimp and little crabs and little slugs and 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 it's a fascinating collection of organisms and it's actually many of those species are found nowhere else there are species that is like associated specifically with sargassum which is kind of cool and then um it's also a place of refuge for juvenile fish that maybe hang out there for a little while hiding from predators and then eventually go and join a big school of swordfish or tuna or, or whatever and uh, it also can be a place of refuge for juvenile or baby sea turtles. Now that sargassum gets blown ashore and washes up on the beach, that's a different issue. There are certain crustaceans and worms and things that probably benefit from the decaying organic material that's, that's breaking down on the beach. But there's also um, some other potential, potential issues. On our beaches in Florida, we have ghost crabs, and those ghost crab holes might get covered up a bit by the by the sargassum, or maybe the sargassum can serve as food for the ghost crabs. I don't think these things have been looked at or determined. S some people have questioned whether or not big piles of sargassum might either interfere with adult female sea turtles trying to nest. When when sea turtles nest, they come up on the beach to the top of the beach, and then they dig a hole and, and lay their eggs. Well, if there's a big mountain of sargassum between them and their nesting place, that might be a challenge for those female turtles. And then once the, the eggs hatch, the juvenile turtles, which are really small and awkward, and they're trying to make their way down to the beach to the water, and they really could get hung up in the sargassum mats if there's big piles of them. Well, Kevin Johnson, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.